And uh, we'll see what the Lord will do through those texts. But we finish today, Titus, this short letter from Paul to one of his disciples who's leading a church on Crete with chapter 3 here. And John will read it, um, pray for us, and then we'll dive into it this morning and see what the Lord has for us. Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send to Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful, Lord, for this building. We're grateful for this body that's come to, to worship you, to learn more about you and to have a response, Father, to act. We pray, Lord, that you would be with Jonathan, that you would um, use your spirit to pour out your word to us, that we would listen, that you would help us to understand through your wisdom. We love you, Lord. We pray, Lord, for a few that are sick in the congregation, um, that are home. We pray, Lord, that you would put your healing hand on them. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, John. So the excellent and profitable life may not be what we expect. Like what scripture tells us, what the Lord provides for us and Paul describes as excellent and profitable as a life to be lived may not actually match up to our expectations. And that's okay because it's actually really good for us, but I want to keep in mind that it's probably not going to match what the world says or what our preconceived notions of what Christian life even should look like may be. And this week I was getting a bit uh, nostalgic, and most of you are pretty young, but some of us remember um, an old commercial from 2006 that was for this naturopathic headache remedy that it was being marketed called Head On. Do you guys remember the commercial? This is back when we had televisions and commercials, but it was super annoying, right? Because it just said head on, right? Apply directly to the forehead. And then you, they showed somebody applying to the direct forehead, but they did it like three times. Head on, apply directly to the forehead. Head on, apply directly to the forehead. 
head on, applied directly to the forehead. And it was like, it, it became viral in a sense back in the day before things were even viral because it was just so annoying in its repetitiveness, but it was tremendously memorable, right? Like, I think those were the early days of like Fox News. And I remember being in my office at the EPA and this thing would come on and it like, it's nuts, right? After seeing the ad, even though it was annoying, and did anybody ever buy head on? Did everybody actually use the product? Not, your mom did? Did it work? You have no idea. So she fell for it, right? She's, she still has some? It saves that whole thing. Oh, migraine. I'll say so they did not solve them back then, right? But even if you didn't fall for the lure of the ad to buy it, you at least knew how to use the product if you were to ever encounter it or actually need it, right? And Paul's exhortation, I think, in Titus is a lot like the head-on commercials were, that he gives us the same truth, essentially served up in three different ways throughout this letter, and it's repetitive in nature with the hopes that it will catch on for the church in Crete and beyond will hear the truth of the gospel and be transformed. And he talks about appointing leaders that exemplify godliness and sacrifice for others. And then he talks about a community that stirs everyone within it, men, women, young and old, to doing good for the sake of each other and for the sake of the gospel. So the message and the theme is the same all throughout this letter to Titus. He's in imperative calls, these um, calls to action essentially in this letter are not there as a way to gain salvation or eternal life, but Paul is indicating them as the way just to live in response to be give, being given salvation and eternal living. So just continuing this contrast between Christian living and the living of the false teachers on Crete, Paul roots our lives in the gospel, and he essentially just calls all of the church to generosity, to humility, and to care for others. And he's essentially calling us to a faith that is tremendously unpopular. It's a faith that's having our old life uprooted, and all through it is a grace that is unending for us, that carries us through. So we start with unpopular. While in Titus up to this point, most of the focus has been relating to each other within, inside the church, within the church, here Paul shifts to living with respect to outsiders, how we engage with people who are not believers, who are not in the church, who are outside the kingdom at this moment. And this is now the public expression of faith in Jesus. This is what it's to look like out there. And sure, we've mentioned last week, uh, especially adorning the gospel and living for others to see. But here the exhortation is exclusive to our posture toward all people. We just have to be clear, when Paul says toward all people, he means who? All people, right? There's no caveats, there's no distinction here, there's no class that is individualized, but he's saying all people, all ethne, every person, every human, this is how you are to relate to them. And honestly, though, what is described here, when you think of it in light of the all people that will receive our posture and our 
lives, this is what's described can be really unpopular. Because it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, even among those who claim to follow Jesus, the exhortation that's here, if we really like sink into it and listen to what Paul is saying, it can be like, ah, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Even this week, I found myself having to do some soul searching as I studied and repenting of ways that I've been less than what is actually described in Titus 3. So what Paul has in mind includes all of our public discourse, how we treat civic and governmental leaders, how we talk about them, how we interact with the stranger, whomever they may be and however they live or however they think. So we just have to ask the question, what should Christians be like? What should the experience of us be like for those that are outside the church? And if you listen to enough voices in our cultural moment, you might think that Christians should do whatever it takes to gain power in our world. That's what the kingdom of God means, a bunch of soldiers marching onward to take over these dominions uh, around us and take authority where we are. That Christians should be the people that win every argument or then just choose to cancel those that we label wrong or opposed to us. And, uh, much of what we see then outside of the church is just this self-righteousness that claims superiority over others. And that bleeds into the church through our idolatry of politics and power and success. And we think that's what it means to be a Christian, to be superior. And it makes our experience tense when we come with that sort of normative reality in our lives and we're trying to follow Jesus and we're interacting with all these people with all these different ideas. Like, Just think about the potential conversations that you are preparing to have around the Thanksgiving table this year, right? So I don't invite anybody to Thanksgiving anymore. No hard discussions. I, don't, I eat by myself in a corner. No, right? Hallelujah. I do have dogs. The dogs are always preferred company for me. But Brian Chapel, this pastor and scholar, he says, in an age of culture wars, we can grasp how much of life is affected by the charge to give proper respect to national leaders, how we vote, the ethics we use in political debate and action, the laws we obey, the legislation we seek, and the language we use to discuss governmental issues and officials at church, at work, and around the dinner table. All these areas of life are affected by Paul's instruction to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Then this subjection is further defined by the instructions to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to not be contentious, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Lest we think Paul and other apostles simply did not know what we have to put up with, we should remember that these were the times of Caesars, occupational armies, and Colosseums. So it's not like now is harder to have a conversation in an environment in the first century where Christians were rounded up and put before others as entertainment in a coliseum. And, and certainly a lot of this comes out in 
political discourse. And I think that's the angle that Paul is getting at, that he's not wanting us to worry about these lower level things and be on the kingdom level. But that's in the sights here with submission to rulers and authorities. But it also has to do just with the ways that we interact with anybody, with all people, our conversations on theology, interactions with your HOA, how we treat the school district, right? People in the line next to you at Walmart, driving down the road, how you interact with servers at the restaurant, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your allies, and with your opponents. And I recognize how what Paul is calling the church to can actually be unpopular, It's like, I get it, I feel the impulse to just rage against everybody that disagrees with me. And the truth is that I am more likely to fight you to prove that we are supposed to be gentle to all people, right? He says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. Like this is challenging, and you, just, you feel how opposed to self that is, right? Like in our best moments, we think, well, yeah, I can do that, no problem. But our list of all people is shorter in that category. But if we really submit to the totality of this, it's like, this is big, right? Paul surely doesn't know what I have to deal with, or kindness just has to be woke ideology that I can just disregard. He doesn't get it in our modern time. But it's not Paul or just a clear interpretation of the text that's the problem with living this way. It's actually just us. It's our brokenness. It's our hearts, our preference to be superior to others. And the truth is, this is an unpopular faith. And it's not just now that this type of living is unpopular. It was unpopular when Paul is writing this letter as well. And he preached the same thing everywhere he went as he founded the church, right? And it's so unpopular that in another letter, he has to encourage Timothy, another disciple, a protege of his, to not be ashamed of what Paul is preaching. You see it in 2 Timothy in the first chapter. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that he has been, entrust, has, has been entrusted to me, So follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And we read that and we agree with all that. It's, It's okay, it's just the absurdity of the gospel that we need to be saved and that God came and sacrificed himself. And we think that's what he's talking about being ashamed of. But then the next verse says, you are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me. 
This is all of the believers in Asia that were with me turned away from me. The people that he planted churches with, that he trained up, that he proclaimed the gospel with. And I think, honestly, it's because salvation is great, but the living is hard, right? And he was in chains at this moment. Paul's not a hero. We may see him as an apostle, as a hero today, but he, the crowds seemingly couldn't get Paul to call for an overthrow of Roman um, hegemony in that moment or to promote the harassment of civic leaders or other things, right? He didn't call them to stand up for their rights. Instead, he teaches what? Gentleness, meekness. And perfect courtesy. And, and I think it's true, because I mean we have it in Scripture, that this is what Christianity is to look like. This is what's to develop in the life of believers, however unpopular it is. Where false teachers need an us-versus-them environment to thrive, where uh, they bank on foolishness of controversies, of genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. Paul calls all of that stuff unprofitable and worthless. And we're to be about something else, about honor, about respect, about dignity, doing good works that actually benefit everyone around us. We live in Christ with then this pervasive humility that is caring, welcoming, valuing of the other. And friends, this is just bringing renewal wherever we are. It's the work the kingdom does in and through us, and God's saving work has direct implications for the way in which believers behave in the world, and they should be devoted to doing the right and best thing in every situation. That includes persuading or pursuing peaceable relations with others, whatever the cost. Right? And the church is, as Francis Schaeffer once put it, God's demonstration community, his final witness to the lost world. And this is what they're supposed to see when they see us. Paul then reminds us into this unpopular faith by revealing what we've been brought out of. By saying, you're, you're new, you're different, you used to be something else, and you are now this. And so we think of this idea of being uprooted. One writer says there's two processes that are simultaneously active in the words that follow this reminder to create the pervasive humility that is so important for the life and testimony of the church. First, Paul distinguishes the present Christian life from its past worldly counterpart, and then he unites Christians in understanding how dependent each is on the grace that we have received as a consequence of the past. He writes here, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And I love Paul's inclusive language here, right? Because as a writer, as a pastor, apostle, he could have said, you all were once. But instead, he chooses very intentionally, we ourselves were this way. This is Paul's story too. 
And he reminds us of our history that we would respond graciously to others because we used to be like that, that we respond graciously to authorities, to each other, because we've received the ultimate of experience of grace in Jesus, that he called us out, he loved us. Becca started us in, in 1 John this morning. It's that same idea that John writes, like we love because he first loved us. And this love, this goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, saves and uproots our old hearts and ways. And this is the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that he describes happening here. One dictionary describes regeneration is the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. And that which precedes faith, it unleashes the ongoing work of renovation of the heart. So regeneration happens. You're able to trust in Christ. And then there's renewal that is ongoing, renovating that old heart into a heart of flesh. And you're meant for more than being foolish, disobedient, and entrapped by passions and pleasure of being hated or hating. And transformation comes, he says, from the appearance of the loving kindness of God, our Savior, to our hearts. And he who saved us by this rich outpouring of his mercy and not according to our own worthiness becomes then the passion of all our endeavors. Because we long to live like Jesus and for his glory and all true godliness is a consequence of understanding that God mercifully came and found us, that he appeared to us. We did not fundamentally seek after him. And his grace, then, as we've talked about, trains our hearts. It teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's an act, then, of uprooting what existed before to leave us ready for every good work. And you have to know it, it's going to take time. Anybody perfect yet? I mean, a lot of believers in here, right? But we're, we're still in process. We're still experiencing Renewal, And I think just that phrase renewal grants the sense of continual work that the Spirit is active in us. Like loosening the grip of the things of the world and our flesh. Now early in this series of Titus, I think Gil liked it a lot because I talked a lot about gardening and weeding, right? How important that is. Well, this week I have to tell you in my own Gardening life that I got a crevice tool. Anybody know what a crevice tool is? Gil's like, yeah, right? But I needed it to remove the pesky grass that's been growing in the little crevices between my sidewalk and the curb, right? right? It's old enough that there's room. There's been a little bit of separation over time. Dirt has gotten into those crevices, and then weeds and grass have grown up in them, and they drive me crazy, you come to my house, look at my curb, and then look at my, don't, I shouldn't, I'm not talking evil about my neighbor's curb, but it's just different. It drives me crazy. But it's the reality, I think those weeds act a lot like the old ways of life, right? And they're a perfect illustration because the grass or the sin is seemingly fine with my weekly weed whacking of what is seen on, on the surface, Right? Because it will just what? It will just grow back. 
because there's roots there, right? But using this crevice tool, which is a terrible name for it, but it's wonderful tool, right? I could actually get to the roots and it, it was work. Like it took a lot of effort, right? It's like I, I, I checked off my exercise box for the day. I didn't have to exercise because I was using the crevice tool. And some of the roots, and you're just yanking and pulling at this and trying to get it, you're trying to cut them up. You're pulling out these roots. And some of these crabgrass roots, you need to know, were like three feet long. It's like deep in there, right? But with that repetitive motion of digging and pulling, the crevice was left clean. And now every time you visit the Schrader house, you're going to look. You're going to judge my war against sin, right? But this is, I mean, it's just exactly how the Holy Spirit uses the gospel on our hearts, right? Not merely a weekly behavior modification, but instead strategic uprooting of the dragons that once ruled our hearts, however deep their talons may go. The things that strangled us in our life, that kept us from real life in Jesus, things that the Spirit washes from us when we come to Christ. Now submissive in the best sense of the word, We've been made clean and clear, kind, gentle, courteous, speaking no evil because Jesus came to us with his gentle and lowly heart and put his spirit to the work of uprooting what was wrong in us. So our lives are now to be ruled by this pervasive humility that's been modeled by our God and Savior. And when we miss it, it's just a reminder that that's not who we are. We ourselves once were, but now in Christ, we are something that is profitable and excellent. Paul says it, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And our, our heart's a little bit, like, read some of this stuff, like imperatives or instructions in Scripture, and we want to do the pharisaical thing of, like, I'm going to be better than everybody else, and I'm going to accomplish these things. And that would be totally against what Paul's getting at here. He's saying the gospel is so good, the work of the Spirit is so good in your heart that you are now transformed to be a believing person that pursues godliness. Not because of anything you did, not because of any work that you accomplished, but because of his great mercy for you. Brian Chapel again says, believing the leveling truths of the gospel creates a community where mali, envy, and infighting disappear along with the need to measure our righteousness against one another. In humility lies the key to living out our obligations to rulers, to one another, and to God. And what produces that humility is the message that Paul says must be our ultimate priority. It's the preaching of the gospel to our hearts. Jesus came. 
He gave of himself. He claimed you to give you life that would look like his. And the gospel leads to excellent and profitable things, to a community that cares for partners in kingdom work, that will come in and serve and be sent out again, that strives for unity that is centered on Christ above all things. It's living in unpopular faith as the gospel increasingly takes root in our hearts, anchored and kept we are by the grace that then is unending for us. Love, this is like dynamite in Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. According to his own mercy, you have life in him. This is eternal living, that we would be kind as people, that we'd be ready for every good work because we have been saved, because we've been claimed by the merciful God that extends his loving kindness to us. And we've been given a grace that keeps going for us, that saves and trains us. And his grace that stands now as our treasure and hope that carries us all the way home into eternity where we are made heirs according to the hope of eternity with him. And our culture may get the, and it's like recent, right? Everybody's on about kindness. Like we should be, and I love it too. Like kindness is good. The kids at school, they learned a song and I asked them to sing it. Are you ready? No? You never learned it because you're older and kindness was not taught. Clearly. You know, so how's it go? Kindness. It's a muscle. What is, how else is it? Kindness is a muscle. Do the work. Got to hustle. Nobody help me. Escondido Public Schools. Don't, I, I need to know the words. Do you know any of the words? Does it have anything to do with the reason why we're kind to people? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Pray. Right? But it's, I mean, we hear it all the time. It's like, be kind. You see the nice little shirts. Be kind. And yeah, please. But we totally lack context for, well, why should I be kind? Because the world has nothing to say as to why we should be kind. And honestly, some of the reasons are just going to go back to self. Well, you'll get more things if you're kind. You'll be elevated as the individual. And we know living for self is not an actual way to a good life. But in Christianity, here we have the why to kindness, right? Because Jesus modeled this for us justifying us by his grace when we were still his enemies he called us his own so how can i not be kind to everyone to extend perfect courtesy that's it's not even southern courtesy right it's perfect courtesy here and i've got a long way to go but i get to keep going because i know that he claimed me by his mercy and he's transforming me by the uprooting work of the spirit in my heart and life 
And it's not just me, it's for you too. Like, we're on the way together. Shiny, happy people. (laughs) Glowing, happy people, to tie it into last week. So trusting, I love this from Tony Evans, great pastor. Trusting in Christ the King as our sin bearer will get you from earth to heaven, but adopting his kingdom agenda will bring heaven's help to your earthly life. And so often we just, we need, I need fire insurance. I just need to make sure at the end that I get to go to the pearly gates. And Jesus, what he invites us to is eternal living in him now. And this is the proof of the empowerment to do it, the regeneration and renewal by his Holy Spirit that we can actually live this way. And we live then clinging to this grace and we become ready for what Jesus has prepared for us ahead of time. All of these good works. And this, friends, is the life that outsiders will see as we welcome them as Jesus has welcomed us. So the excellent and profitable life may not actually be what we expect, but it is good. So pursue the things that are excellent and profitable. We've seen this whole letter. It's a steadiness. It's self-control. It's being perfectly courteous. It's valuing image bearers. It's being anchored in the eternal life that is ours in Christ. So just be a friend. Be safe because Jesus has been those things to you. And Paul's final words here are, grace be with you all. I love it because he knows everybody is listening, not just Titus. And the apostle here states this message, message last to let the implications of it reverberate in Christian hearts all throughout the ages. And may it be that message that all of us want to leave as well, to forever renew in the hearts and lives of God's people the message, grace be with you all. The grace of Christ apply directly to your heart. The grace of Christ apply directly to your heart. Right? Is that how I should do it? The grace of Christ apply directly to your heart and be forever changed. May it be so in us. I typically would pray.